Father, we thank you. Lord, we just honor you this evening. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for grace. We thank you for your compassion that you show to us daily. We thank you for this time of coming together to study your word. We ask you to touch the one that teaches this class, that you will give him the wisdom that comes from above, not of the earth. Oh God, touch our hearts that we would have a teachable spirit. Father, And we will hide your word in our hearts so we will not sin against you. Be with us this evening, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We have a uh, sort of a combination Bible study. We've been talking about who is Jesus. And that has been our study since the beginning of the year. And there's no better way to complete telling who Jesus is than the book of Revelation. And so this will be uh, the ending of that study, but it will be the beginning of uh, our Bible study on the book of Revelation. So we're going to kind of get a two-for-one deal over the next few weeks. Uh, I think it's probably fair to say, not just myself, but probably any Bible teacher, uh, the book of Revelation is by far the most requested Bible study for good reasons. But I kind of want to lay out sort of a perspective that we're going to take uh, from the beginning here to kind of steer us in the direction I feel like the Lord is, is leading me to go. We are going to look at Revelation from the perspective of what it has to tell us about Jesus Christ. You know, I was thinking about it today. Jesus Christ is easily the most significant person of the past, of the present, of the future. Uh, you know, all of history revolves around him. It's his story. And yet, um, for the most part, the things we talk about in, in his life, his death, his resurrection, whether it's talking about his birth at Christmas, his crucifixion on Good Friday, his, his resurrection on Easter, the stories we tell and the things we talk about are all things that happened in the past. And uh, that's good to do. Uh, certainly, his, his life and death and resurrection are critical uh, to our faith, to our, to our doctrine, to our relationship with God. And it's right that we look back. But in looking back, we must not forget also to look at his present ministry. If I were to ask the question, what is Jesus doing right now, today? You know, some people would, would, would kind of struggle to put that into words. They would say, well, you know, he's, he's in heaven, he's, he's making intercession. Uh, you know, those sort of comments which are true, but don't give us, you know, don't give us a real picture as, as say, in the same way that when we look back at the Gospels and, and read about his life does. And then if we look forward, what is Jesus Christ going to do? What remains as pertaining to the mission of Jesus Christ and the purpose of Jesus Christ? It gets even maybe a little bit more uh, complicated because, you know, we say things like, well, he's going to come again. Uh, you know, he's going to judge the world. He's going to usher in a, a, a new kingdom, but without really breaking that down and understanding what that's going to look like and what that's going to mean for us, for others. And the book of Revelation, like no other book in the Bible, sums up the purpose and the power and the promise of Jesus Christ, his, his destiny, 
uh, no one, no book does it better than the book of Revelation. And uh, we, we miss that sometimes. We don't see it. We fail to see it. We fail to see the full glory of Christ in Revelation uh, for different reasons. Usually because, you know, we're too focused on trying to decipher some clues or trying to compare what is written with what is happening on the news of the moment. And, and I'm not saying, you know, that there aren't some things there that are pertinent to our present situation, but when you, when you look at Revelation just as a, a book about, you know, how the world's going to end and try to, you know, try to see if you can figure out, you know, if what this is about or that's about, uh, it's very easy to miss the actual message of Revelation. Uh, and you know, if we were to talk about that title, why is this book titled The Revelation of Jesus Christ? Uh, that title sets the stage. It is uh, really the perfect title for this book because this is a book about Jesus and uh, specifically about revealing uh, the glory and the majesty and the, and the destiny of Jesus Christ. You know, that last glimpse that the apostles had of Jesus ascending into the cloud, that, that statement in, in, cha in Acts chapter 1 where the angels say, this same Jesus shall come again in the like manner as you have seen him depart. You know, that last glimpse of Jesus as he was entering into his glory left a lot of questions, I'm sure, in the minds of the apostles. I'm sure they, they saw that and, you know, could not help, as we do today, to wonder, okay, what, what happens next? Jesus ascends and then what? And so in this book, we have some of those answers. We have some of those uh, revelations. You know, this word revelation, uh, the Greek word here, you probably recognize it. You probably use it. It's the word apocalypse or apocalypsis, apocalypsis. Uh, when we use that word in the common vernacular of, of, of English today, uh, you know, somebody says the apocalypse is upon us. They're kind of using it in a different way than it's used in this book. Um, we kind of have, I guess, accepted the idea that apocalypse is a, is a bad word. It's a, it's a, you know, word about the doom and the destruction and the tribulation and all those things. But that's not actually what the word was used for. It's a common word actually in the New Testament. It's used in Corinthians. It's used in Thessalonians. Uh, Peter uses it. Uh, Paul uses it in Galatians. Uh, it's a word that when applied to Jesus Christ talks about the unveiling or the revealing of the, the true glory, the true nature of Jesus Christ. It is a word that that says that we didn't get the whole picture of Jesus during his earthly life and ministry. We saw enough. We saw enough to convince us of who he is and of, of what he's done for us. But there's, there's, there's some things that were hidden uh, by, uh, by his, his coming in the flesh. And these things are revealed to John on the island of Patmos. And so when we think about this word apocalypse or this word revelation, we should think of it in, that, in the terms that it's used in the New Testament to refer to the coming, the appearing, the manifestation of Jesus Christ when he returns. Uh, make no mistake about it, the book of Revelation is a book about 
the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, now, some people have different opinions as to what that means. You, you've probably heard or maybe read some things uh, about some Christians who believe that this book was written to, to talk about specifically the fall of Jerusalem and the dispersal of the Jewish people in A.D. 70, and that's what is meant by the second coming of Jesus. Uh, and, you know, there's some, some reasons why they believe that. There's some reasons why, why they teach that, but that's not really, in my opinion, uh, what the writer is talking about here. You can, you can, you can draw some parallels, but anytime we look at prophecy, anytime we look at specifically prophecies concerning Jesus, what we want to see is some consistency in, in how we understand them or how we, how we interpret them. Think back to the prophecies concerning Jesus' first advent, uh, the prophecies that dealt with his birth, with his childhood, with his earthly life. Now, when those prophecies were given, whether we're talking about Isaiah, whether we're talking about Jeremiah, David, uh, when those prophecies were given, it would be, um, you know, at the time, someone may have said, well, this is a reference to, you know, the spirit of the Messiah, or this is a reference to the, the messianic age that's going to come when everybody gets right with God. And some people might have believed that. But then when Jesus came, he actually fulfilled those prophecies in a literal, physical, and bodily way. He was actually born in Bethlehem. He actually grew up in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. He actually was exiled in Egypt as a child. He, he actually did the things. He was actually crucified on a cross. And he actually rose from the dead. All of the prophecies about his first coming were fulfilled in a literal way. And so if we want to be consistent, I think we have, to, we have to accept that the prophecies concerning his second coming will also be fulfilled in a literal way. In other words, we believe, or at least I believe, in a literal, physical, and bodily return of Jesus Christ to this world. Um, that's what we preach, that's what we teach, and that's what we believe the majority of the book of Revelation is talking about. We're going to go on. We're going to look at chapter 1, if you have your Bible open. And we're going to start with verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all the things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So let's start there with those first three verses. And that opening statement, we've talked about what the phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, actually means. This should be understood in relation to both Jesus himself and the things which must shortly come to pass. Um, in other words, it means it's about Jesus, but it's also from Jesus. He is both the Revealer and the one who is being revealed. He is the subject of the revelation. Uh, and so when we want to look at the book and look at the things that uh, were written in it, we always want to orient ourselves from the person and position of Jesus Christ. As long as we keep him center in the revelation, uh, 
I think we can we can stay on very firm ground. I know it's uh, it's easy in a book like Revelation to go down different trails and and different rabbit holes, and it's very easy to lose track. You know, there's there's so many titles and symbols and visions. The story jumps from the past to the present to the future. And so it, it's very easy to lose kind of our place. And, and we have to be very careful and pay very close attention to the context uh, that John is using in any given place. Uh, we don't, you know, if we don't understand where and when and what he's talking about, you know, you know, you have those today. Of course, you know, as I said, one of the one of the ways in which Revelation is um, taught today, one of the popular ways of teaching it, is to kind of just say, okay, well, Revelation chapter six uh, says this, and then we go look at whatever the headline is on the nightly news, and I say, okay, well, this is that, and. Uh, who knows? I mean, I mean, one day it will be. This is that. But that's not necessarily what the book was intended to communicate. It talks about the coming of Christ, and it talks about the events that will surround his coming. But it's not one of those books where you can really do the this is that uh, without being very, very, very careful not to violate the context of the scripture. Uh, one of the things we, we have to understand is um, this vision of John is a throne vision. You say, well, what is a throne vision? Well, if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 1 or Isaiah chapter 6 or even Daniel chapter 7, you see that the throne vision is a very particular type of prophecy. It's something that comes directly from the throne of God. John, John introduces in his introduction in verse 4 uh, the one who is and was and is to come. So it's very clear that this is a book that comes straight, or this is a vision that comes straight from the throne of God. And if we want to understand how to interpret it, how to apply it, we've got to understand those those throne visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and others. They're the backdrop to the book of Revelation. They give the context and meaning to the rest of the book. And so we're going to look at that and go back to that on several occasions. All right, so in verses 1 through 3, John tells us that what he is what he is doing is, or what he is writing, what he is sharing, is something that has been given to Christ, through Christ, about Christ, from God. All right, so John has been chosen to bear witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So again, we see that reference that this is a prophetic look at who Jesus is in the present context of John. And the things that are written in it are prophetic, or at least were prophetic at the time of the writing. Verses 4 through 8, I'm not going to read them, but if you have your Bible open, you can look at them. You see John's introduction. You see... Uh, that reference to who is and who was and who is to come, you're going to see that quite often in the book of Revelation. And it refers in different contexts both to God the Father and to Jesus Christ. And you're going to see a lot of interchange in the titles that are given. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit down the road. So John talks about this message that he has given and this vision he's been given, this prophecy he's been given by the one who sits on the throne. And 
also from Jesus Christ. Then you see those titles. Uh, the description he gives corresponds to the offices. We've been talking about the offices of Christ in previous Bible studies. He's the faithful witness. That is the prophetic office. He's the firstborn of, de of the dead. His redemptive office. He's the ruler over the kings of the earth. His office, his kingly office. And then he talks about him being the one who washed us from our sins in his own blood. His priestly office. And then it refers to him as the one who's made us a kingdom of priests or kings and priests, if you have your King James open. And that refers to him as the head of the church. The church is the kingdom of priests. So here we see those titles, those uh, terms that have been applied to Jesus Christ throughout the New Testament. These holy offices, these ordained appointments that Jesus Christ has. And John combines them all together in the uh, in verse six and verses five and six here, so that we understand the full scope of the mission and ministry of Jesus Christ. And then we have verse 7, which gives us the actual first prophecy in the book, which is that he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. And that is a, again, you go back to Acts chapter 1. Go back to uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 7. Uh, go back to Second uh, Thessalonians uh, and several other references. Uh, all of these refer specifically to the coming of Christ in glory, in power, in the clouds, in, uh, in such a way that his coming is visible and manifest and, and all know what is happening and all recognize what is happening. The promise of Christ's coming is the unifying spirit of prophecy. Uh, going all the way back to Job 19, all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, you see this multitude of references that the coming of the Savior, the Son of Man, the Lord from heaven, will be glorious and powerful and, and will be manifest and, you know, the, the, the skies will will be rolled back and, and, and the atmosphere will be consumed and the brightness of its coming will be all by itself sufficient to destroy his enemies. These are multitude of references that let us know and give us an assurance. Remember one of the things that um, Paul wrote to, to the Thessalonians. Remember one of the concerns that the Thessalonians had was that they had somehow missed the return of Christ, the resurrection, the, the whole thing. And, you know, when Paul uses this term apocalypse or revelation in, uh, in Second Thessalonians, he refers to it in connection to that, that uh, idea that the coming of Christ is not something that can be missed. You, you will know when Jesus comes. We will know. The world will know when Jesus comes. It won't be something that will be, okay, well, some people think it was, but other people think it was just this or that. It will be so manifestly clear. When Jesus came the first time, only a, you know, a few people recognized who he was. Uh, some shepherds, uh, some wise men, uh, a few disciples, some followers. But when he comes again, all the tribes of the earth will, will know it is he. It is him. They will mourn because of him. They who pierced him will mourn because of him. So we know, we know that it is not possible for Christ to return quietly or silently or invisibly as our 
as our Jehovah Witness brethren like to teach, um, that he came back secretly. Jesus himself told his disciples in Matthew chapter 24, uh, if anyone tells you, lo, Christ is in the desert, or, or Christ is here, or he's in a hidden chamber, don't believe him. He says the coming of the man will be like the coming of the Son of Man will be like lightning. It goes from the east to the west, and you know it's very quick, uh, but it's also very manifest. If any of you, I was driving down uh, the road Sunday afternoon, um, and it was very, as you know, it was very poor weather, bad weather, and we were headed up for a. Uh, a funeral service for Sister Poole, and I don't know if you had heard about her passing, but we were going up, and uh, the weather was so, you know, dark and dreary, and and you know, suddenly there was this this just crack of lightning way out in the distance. I mean, it probably took a good six, seven, eight seconds for us to even hear the thunder. That's how far away it was. But even though it was so quick that you couldn't even count, there was no mistaking it. You know, my, my wife didn't say, oh, was that lightning? Or could that have been something else? No, you, you knew it was lightning. You'll know it when you see it. You'll know it when you hear it. And that's what John is trying to tell us, that the coming of Christ will be unmistakable. It will be uh, something that is so... Uh, sure and true as to what it is that there will be no alternate explanation be able to be given. Uh, do I have any comments or questions on this section? Well, the only thing, Pastor, the only thing I would have to that is that um, that the coming of Jesus in this context will be visible and victorious. Everyone will see, and see him arrive and they will know that it is Jesus if I read this context right. There's no doubt about that fact. That is going to, we will know and it will be visible. And that just visible to also be a victorious second coming. Amen. Yes, visible and victorious for him and for us. Uh, not so much for the world. It's going to be uh, a different story for them. But yes, and, and, and let me just take a moment here. I know it's probably somebody's thought of it. If I thought of it, you probably thought of it. You, you know, you may say, well, Pastor, what about the rapture? Isn't that a hidden thing? Um, and let me say this carefully because, I, you know, we, I, I don't want to mislead anybody. Um, there is no direct reference to the rapture itself in the book of Revelation, at least as I, as I read it. There's some, there's some things that happen later where the church is shown in heaven, and so it can be, it can be inferred, it can be deduced. How did they get there? Well, they must have been raptured or resurrected to get there. But any time... In the book of Revelation, where there's a reference to the coming of Christ, it is a reference to his actual physical return to this world. Um, and we, of course, we believe that the rapture will happen at some point prior to his return. Um, and I'm not going to, I don't want to, I don't want to get into the conversation tonight about pre, mid, post, all of that. We, we can cover that in a, in a, in a different time. Uh, just know that we are assured that we who are alive and remain will be caught up. Uh, and, and that will happen when the dead in Christ rise. So we can, we can have trust in that. But when I'm talking tonight or when we're reading in Revelation about the coming of Christ, uh, we are talking about his visible, bodily, physical return to this world with his saints to rule and to reign on earth. Uh, and that is the second coming. That is what the second coming is really about. 
Uh, and then you see John closes his introduction with a quote from the Lord, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, who is and was and is to come. Now, depending on the Bible you are reading out of, for example, the Bible I'm reading out of is a New King James translation from ANG Publishers. Um, in my Bible, that quotation is in red letters. Can somebody tell me what red letters mean in your Bible? Jesus is speaking. Yes, a, a, a red letter, uh, verses in red are... Uh, attributed words and quotes and statements that are attributed to Jesus himself. Now, I have another Bible here me from a near me tonight from a different publisher that does not have those words in red, although it is a red letter edition. This lets you know that the choice of whether to attribute this quote to Christ or to God is really a translator's choice. I want to explain that. Um, previously in the book, in, in verse 4, John uses the same statement, who is, who was, and who is to come. In verse 4, John is clearly referring to God the Father, the one who's on the throne, the one that the seven spirits minister before. He names Jesus Christ in verse 5, letting us know that you know that's a, that the one in verse 4 is not a reference to Jesus. He uses the same phrase, who is, who was, who is to come, in verse 8, along with the phrase Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, and the title Almighty. Why do some translators believe that it's Jesus speaking here? Well, if you go to verse 11, where it's clearly Christ, he says the same thing. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Why do some translators believe that John is referring to God the Father in verse 8? Because every other reference to the Almighty in the book of Revelation, and there's a total of eight, total of eight times the name Almighty is used in the book of Revelation, including this verse. The other seven times it's used, it's addressed to God the Father. So, uh, if you're reading a red-letter book, you're, you're, and, and it's highlighted in red, that's telling you that the translators believe it's Jesus who's speaking, who John is quoting. And if you're reading a red-letter book and it's not in red, that tells you the translators believe it's a reference to the Father. Now, the question is, does it matter? Ultimately, it does not matter in the sense of whether or not it's proper to call Jesus the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, because we're going to learn later. That's exactly what John calls them. But it is important to understand that in these visions that John has, he doesn't always indicate to us specifically who he's referring to or 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 when he's transitioning from looking to one to another. So um, it's best in these situations to just, uh, you know, you can have your personal opinion, and if somebody wants to teach it one way, that's fine. If somebody wants to teach it another way, that's fine. It doesn't violate anything in the text itself. All right. So when we look at whether or not it's the Father or Jesus, we come to understand that the term Alpha and Omega can refer and does refer in the scriptures to both of them. Alpha and Omega were the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And they were used or are used to refer generally to the, the total sum of the message or knowledge or wisdom of the subject. So think how we might today say from A to Z. The way we would say from A to Z. I read everything from A to Z on the coronavirus. I've read, you know, I, I did everything A to Z that I was supposed to do on the list of things. We're taught, we don't mean, you know, literally we did A, B, C, D, although sometimes that might, uh, that might actually be the case. But what we're saying is we have, we have looked at 
all of the information, all of the knowledge, all of the wisdom on that particular subject or that particular issue. And when it's applied to Christ, it tells us that he is the total sum of knowledge and wisdom concerning God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the A to Z uh, of what is revealed about God. And we've covered that in a different way in previous Bible studies, but I wanted to give you kind of a background on how to understand that phrase, Alpha and Omega, and when it's applied to Jesus. Uh, now, beginning and end has a similar meaning, but, you know, if we were to make a distinction, we would talk about um, beginning and end being more related to the purpose. Um, so we would understand that uh, the, the glorification of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus, the apocalypse of Jesus, is the primary reason for everything that has happened and will happen and, and is happening now. Everything that is happening from the moment of creation to the, to the final, uh, final hour is designed to be uh, part of the story of revelation and fulfillment of Jesus Christ. He is the subject of creation, all things for him, through him, by him, for him. And then the phrase first and last, they're also very similar, but we can understand them more as relating to the sequence or the timing of certain events. Everything is happening in a certain order. Um, you know, the, the cross had to happen before the resurrection, the virgin birth before the cross, and so on and so forth. And, and what, what John wants us to understand, what the revelation is, is that the, from the first event to the last event, um, it's all about Jesus and will ultimately be completed in Jesus. These titles reveal the characteristics of Christ and of, of the Godhead themselves, the omniscience, the omnipotence, the omnipresence, what God knows to be, he will bring to pass in the time and in the space of, of creation. These titles are similarly or similar titles to them are used four times in Revelation and refer both to God the Father and to Jesus Christ, showing the, the unity and the diversity of the Godhead. So these terms apply equally uh, to the Father and the Son. They are both Alpha and Omega, first and last, who was and is and is to come. And this shows us the unity of the Trinity. Uh, but they're also made distinct. And in the book of Revelation, that's made very clear as Christ takes center stage for the unveiling of his glory and the purpose that was intended in him. John, on the Isle of Patmos, receives this vision. And in verses 12 through 20, he gets his first glimpse, his first look at Christ in his ascended glory. And uh, the description that is given here is familiar to students of prophecy. John's vision of Jesus Christ compares with previous visions. Remember, we talked about those throne visions, in particular the throne vision in Daniel chapter 7, uh, the ancient of days vision, that actual uh, vision in chapter 7 of Daniel that refers to both the Son of Man and the ancient of days as is, is combined in what John sees in, uh, in his first glimpse of the Son of God in his ascended glory. That description of the garments he's wearing, what his head and hair look like, what his eyes are like, is a very powerful and, and dramatic one. And, and one of the things that we should understand about that vision, and I know... Um, 
you know, one, one of the things that kind of separates us from uh, some of our other Christian movements is for the most part, we Pentecostals, we do not try to make um, images of Christ as part of our decor, as our part of our, our worship. You go into our churches, there's no pictures, there's no Christ on the cross like you might see. I don't know if anybody's familiar with the some of the Catholic or, or, or other icons that are, are, are presented. But you'll notice, if you've ever seen one of those uh, Christ on the cross pictures or, or carvings, um, you'll notice that the picture of Christ on that cross is very different from what John sees in his vision here. Um, I'm not trying to sound like I'm condemning or or saying it's wrong to, to to call to mind the image of our Savior's suffering. That's not what I'm saying. But it would be a mistake to think that that is what he looks like now. Um, the portrait of Christ on the cross is dramatic. And it's a powerful uh, way to remind ourselves of the, the suffering of, of our Lord on our behalf. But this picture, this portrait of what John sees here is not of a beaten and broken man bleeding and, and dying. This is a glorious man. A man who is fully radiating the, the, the divine essence. And I think it's important that when we think of Christ in his present form, we, we, we get away a little bit from that cross picture and think of him more in these terms of his glorified body and his glorified uh, uh, appearance as he is today. I believe this is what Jesus looks like now and uh, what he will look like when he returns. Uh, and, and I think it's a much more powerful picture of, of his glory than, than some of the things that we're used to, to looking at. Uh, then John closes out his vision and he gives us a really important clue for the rest of Revelation. Um, and I think we need to take a moment here and understand. When he sees Jesus in, in his glory, he notices, verse 16, in his hand, in his right hand, seven stars. And out of his mouth a sharp sword, his countenance like the sun shining in its strength. Uh, and that's a powerful, powerful picture. But we also notice here, back in verse 12, John saw seven golden uh, menorahs, or candlesticks, or lampstands. This is a powerful clue about the location of Jesus Christ in the presence. We call this a throne vision. For the throne is a centerpiece of this vision. We'll see that chapters 4 and 5 and, and other parts of, of Revelation. But it's very important to under, for us to understand that the throne of God is not in some heavenly palace or, uh, you know, some, you know, governmental structure in eternity. The lampstands and the things that we will see as we move through this revelation, make it very clear that this throne is in a temple, in the heavenly temple, that God rules and reigns not from a palace, but from the mercy seat, from the holy of holies, from the inner sanctum. And what we're seeing here is that veil that's been torn away, and we see Christ 
in his high priestly glory, our great high priest, standing before the altar of God, standing in the midst of those lampstands, which we're going to learn what they are, and uh, understand that the temple is the dwelling place of Jesus Christ. And it is from here that revelation will be given, that the judgment will be meted out, and that justice will be established. And we've talked about temples before and their importance as a place where God and man can share the same space and the, the same time, where you know, temp, a temple is a place of worship, it's a place of, of reconciliation, it's a place of fellowship. And so from this portion, we understand that the goal of Revelation and the goal we, and you know, we, I don't want to give away the ending, but if you go all the way to chapters 21 and 22, you will see uh, this progress of the glory and the temporal presence of Christ as it expands outward into the earth and into creation, into the universe. So by the time he's finished, there is no more temple. There is no more separate space for God and man, that God and man will now share all of creation, that the whole world will be the temple of God. And that takes us back to God's original purpose, the Garden of Eden, the, the coming together of the human and the divine. So, you know, we're going to unpack that as we get deeper and deeper into Revelation. But I want you to catch that here, that whenever you think, whenever this vision switches to heaven, remember that what John is seeing is the things, the, the heavenly uh, worship and the ministrations of what is taking place in that temple. And in the midst of that temple, of course, are the seven stars and the seven lampstands. And we'll talk about that in a moment. All right. In the last few verses, Jesus addresses John, identifies himself again, that Alpha Omega, that first and last, the one who, who was, who lives, who was dead, who's alive forevermore. So we see that, the consistency. But then he adds something. He adds that he has the keys of hell or Hades or Sheol and of death. Jesus claims absolute power on the basis of his resurrection from the dead. So let's understand how that works. And we talk about the temple being a place of reconciliation and mediation, a two-way street. Jesus affirms his authority to be that mediator. He confirms his identity and says that he is the one and the only one who can be that uh, one who brings heaven and earth together, God and man into fellowship, because he is the one who has proven his divinity and his eternity and his authority by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the unveiling of his true nature. What was hidden behind his flesh is now revealed in his glorification. And part of that authority is the authority, the absolute authority over death and the souls of the dead. This matters, and we're going to understand why it matters as we go along. But the only real rival, Satan's not a rival uh, in the sense of, of what he's, you know, he's, he's a nuisance, he's, he's an enemy. But the only real rival to Eternity to God is death. Uh, death had the power, has the power to end. And Jesus said he is the end. And so by taking the power of death and the keys of, of the dead into his own hands, he has eliminated the only real challenge 
through his authority and is now Lord of both the living and the dead. And that's a very powerful statement as we're going to, as we're going to see when we get to the resurrections. He says he holds the messengers of the gospel in his right hand, the hand of power. It is an awesome responsibility to speak for Christ and, and an awesome privilege. Those who do so with integrity can be assured that they are speaking on his authority. Uh, as well as those who do not do so with integrity, they will, uh, they will surely answer to him. That's <laughs> something I think about a lot. To speak for Christ is perhaps the most uh, um, important thing anyone can do, but it's, it has to be done fully and completely in compliance with the word he gives. Uh, it makes me very uncomfortable. I worry about some of the things I hear people saying in the name of Jesus that in my mind don't have, uh, don't have much to do with, with anything that Jesus actually would say. The mystery of the church is represented in those lampstands, uh, a place of honor in the temple. The church is the light of the world. Jesus confirms that he is the, in the midst of his people. We are his temple, his body. And he's letting us know that he's fully aware of our circumstances at all times. Um, chapter 1 reveals a powerful and present and prophetic Christ. He is fully enthroned with the glory and power of the Godhead and is charged with bringing to pass the ultimate purpose of creation, that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of the earth should be united together under the authority of Jesus Christ. The church is revealed as the present instrument through which Jesus is bringing this reconciliation to fulfillment, and a more direct reproach will soon be revealed. In this chapter, we see Jesus in his full divinity and glory, as he is now, no longer the meek and lowly man, but the glorious risen Savior of the world. And his presence and power in the midst of the church is the basis not only of our worship, but our mission. And his glory should be evident in his body at all times. And those who deliver that message and his message are his authorized agents of reconciliation. All right, that uh, concludes our look at chapter one. We will see you on Sunday, or hear you on Sunday then at 1015. Good night, everyone. God bless. been a production of the Lighthouse Church of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. You are welcome to join us for service by calling 701-801-6266 every Sunday at 1015 a.m. For more information or to support our ministry, visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org. God bless you. Until next time. This is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.